With you this morning, let's go to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 13. I I didn't get in trouble last week with my first message on government, so I'm going to try again today and see what I can stir up. I'm excited about this series of messages because I believe that God's Word is sufficient for all aspects of life, and too often we divorce parts of life from one another, and we think about the Bible as being sufficient for uh, issues of salvation and how we ought to treat our wife or our husband or our kids or our neighbors, but then we we look at other things in the world like commerce and economy and those things, and and we have no biblical reference for it, and and that's not how God designed it. God actually has put all the information information that we need to navigate life in his word and so I'm excited about that today because I'm going to connect these two things for you or at least that's my goal is to connect the 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 idea or concept of economy uh, with the biblical concept and so uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 uh, 1 through 9 in Genesis chapter 13. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land." And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou wilt depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Let's pray. Lord, it is our absolute privilege to come into your presence and to sit at your feet again today. Lord, I do pray and ask that you would grasp our attention this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit within inside of us would give us a laser-like focus so that we are not distracted by any other subsequent thought. Father, I pray and ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and that you would help me to be an accurate interpreter of your word. May I not add to or take away, but may I simply point out what you have already placed in your word. Father, I pray that this leads us to greater admiration and adoration for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we identified the primary purpose of government as to preserve the personal autonomy of individuals. And so we we looked at it from Scripture and we said, okay, God created human beings, individuals with autonomy, this ability to self-govern. He gave us what we needed to govern ourselves. And then when he implemented government, it was limited to help preserve the autonomy that was already there. God established 
Commission authorized human government to make and enforce laws of justice in order to protect the personal rights of the people. So we understand that government wasn't created as this big machine and then God created people to work it and fund it and serve it. But the reverse was true. God created individuals and then he implemented a level of human government to help protect and preserve them against greater powers or domination. Now, this did not mean that government was responsible to provide everything for its citizens, meaning that this protection of autonomy does not mean that they facilitate every need and want in life, but it was to protect the God-given rights of the people. You know, as I look back in our history as Americans, we have a rich heritage in the experiment of government. And I believe that our founders uh, understood and articulated well the biblical concept of government. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment because we live in a day and time when everybody pontificates on government. Well, it should be this way or that way, or we should have uh, this type of judicial system or this type of legislative system, or we should change the executive executive branch, and you have people who are sitting somewhat in a vacuum or an echo chamber, and they're talking about all this, but you have to think back to how this government of America was forged. It was forged under the oppressive hand of a monarch who was giving taxation without representation. And so the, the people who had lived under that uh, uh, autocracy for so long were burdened for a purer or better form of government. And so it was out of that that our founding fathers, like Jefferson and Washington and Franklin and Adams and the rest, began to try to conceive of what would be the most equitable form of government there is and the product of which came the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the amendments that came with that. And so you got to realize that these guys were in a certain context that we're not in today that really forced them to dig deep as they were trying to become the architects of a new government. Now listen to how they framed this in the Declaration of Independence. And the first sentence you're going to recognize hands down but I want you to see the sentence that follows directly after. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Next sentence. That to secure these rights... Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now think about that in the framework of what we've already been talking about in government. It recognizes that our autonomous rights 
were granted to us by our Creator, and every human being has the same basic rights. They are unalienable. That means that that they cannot be squashed or taken away, but that they are self-evident that God has given every human being these essential rights. And then he goes on to say government is there to secure those, to protect those. Government does not grant you rights. Government does not grant us the right to assemble here today. Let me say that again. The government does not grant us the right to assemble here today. And if the government uh, made it illegal for a church to assemble, we would still assemble because there is a higher power that has called us to assemble together. And that is our God-given right to do so. And so these rights don't come from government. These rights come from God. And government's role is to secure or to protect those. Our founding fathers understood that. So the question before us today is, what type of economy corresponds with and is conducive to preserving personal autonomy? If you and I have personal autonomy and government is supposed to protect and preserve that, then the next question we have to answer is, what kind of economy is conducive to that? Because with every government, there is an economy. The fact is the government has much to do with the economy by means of taxation. They are empowered to levy taxes. And the taxes impact our economy, right? Your paycheck is impacted by taxation. When you fill up at the gas tank, it's impacted by taxation. What you buy at the grocery store is impacted by taxation. So taxation has a direct connection to the economy. Not only that, government also has the authority to implement regulations on markets and businesses, which also have a direct impact. And so when I first came to this area, I was told that there was only one cable and internet provider that I could buy from because this was their monopoly or their area. That's a government regulation that impacted the market. And so we understand that if we're looking at this concept of government, we have to address the issue of economy because the government impacts the economy through taxation and regulations that it imposes on the people and on the market. And so I want to ask you a question. Would you be surprised to learn that the Bible favors a capitalistic economy over a communistic economy? Now listen to what I said. I chose my words specifically. The Bible favors a capitalistic economy over a communistic economy. What I'm not saying is that the Bible prescribes it or that the Bible says this is the only economy. But when you read the Bible and you observe it, when you apply the, the, the rules of hermeneutics, the science of studying the Bible, and you just make observations as you read through the Bible, you will find that the Bible favors or leans heavily on a capitalistic economy, not a communistic one. By that, I mean the majority of the Bible narratives from Genesis to Revelation are set in the context of capitalistic economies rather than communistic economies. And if you took them out of the context of a capitalistic economy, it wouldn't make sense, some of the things that are said. 
And so that we are all on the same page, I want to define these terms for you. First term I define, capitalism. Now, stick with me. We are going somewhere. This is more than just Econ 101. Capitalism is defined as an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners. That's the cornerstone. It's trade and industry is controlled by private owners for profit in a free market rather than by the state. By the way, I got that definition from Oxford Dictionary, which is the principal dictionary in the English language. So I'm not just pulling it out of a capitalistic dictionary. The next term I want to define for you is communism. Communism. Communism is a political and economic system in which all private property, private wealth, and private business is confiscated from citizens and controlled by a state monopoly. You say, where'd you get that definition? Well, I got it from the Communist Manifesto. This week, I went online and I read the Communist Manifesto, which was written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in 1848, which was a blueprint for implementing communism in the nations around the world and has continued to be uh, the sacred document of communism and socialism ever since. And so I read it and put together this definition out of what they said of themselves. And there may be someone sitting here today and say, well, well, you're just saying communism and capitalism. Why not socialism? I mean, is there not a third rail? Is there not a mediating path? Well, I say that only capitalism, communism, because according to Marxist theory, socialism is a transitional social state between the overthrow of capitalism and the realization of communism. Again, that comes from the Oxford Dictionary. And it says that socialism in Marxist theory is a transitional state. It is moving from overthrowing capitalism towards communism. So it's not a terminal state. So I don't include it. Rather, I hold up the two poles of economy. On one pole, you have capitalism. And on the other pole, the opposing pole, you have communism. And so those are the two uh, field markers that we're going to operate in today. So you got your Bible open in front of you. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. Let's go back to the book of Origins. Uh, let's just make some observations from Scripture. So we're not going to go super in-depth. We're just going to read over and we're going to see some things. And so if you would, go back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is where God calls the Abraham that we read about in Genesis 13. And what I discover in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, is that Abraham was called as a capitalist. He was a capitalist when God chose him to be the father of a new nation. Genesis 12, uh, Genesis 12 uh, says this, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee. In thee shall the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. Watch verse 5. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their sub substance 
that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan and into the land of Canaan they came. Simple observation here, folks. Abraham owned private property. He had herds, he had cattle, and he had private wealth so that he had the ability when God called him to go to a foreign land to pull his resources and to pick up and to move independently without the aid of an outside agency like government to reestablish himself in another country. I'm telling you, he was operating in a capitalistic mode when God called him. By the way, you realize God knew that, don't you? Like God knew everything about Abraham, like who his parents were, who his grandparents were, what he was doing, where he was at. So God knew that he was calling a guy who was practicing capitalism to become the founder of his nation. Not only that, we find that God blessed Abraham in his capitalistic endeavors. In Genesis 12, 2, he says, I will bless thee. I will make thy name great. I will make of thee a great nation. How is he going to do that? By blessing what Abraham is already endeavoring to do. That's how he's going to make. He's going to bless Abraham's capitalistic endeavors. When we go fast forward into Genesis 13, look with me at verse 2 for just a moment. Genesis 13, verse 2. And Abram was what? You tell me. Oh, that's a dirty word for some people. He was very rich. He was filthy rich in cattle and in silver and in gold. Do you realize that there are some positions, communistic, socialistic, who say that that is one of the great sins of capitalism is that somebody can become very rich while other people are still very poor. And yet... I'm just pointing out to you, I'm not saying that God signed off on everything that Abraham did. I'm just telling you that Abraham had privately held wealth and property. That's the cornerstone of capitalism. Privately held wealth and property. Let, let's, let's go a little bit further. In verse 5, we learn that Abraham's nephew Lot also had privately owned property. And so, verse 5, Lot also, which, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. So, let me ask you, let me make sure I'm right. Did Abraham have privately owned property and wealth? Yes or no? Yes. Did Lot also have privately owned property and wealth? Yes. We're just reading the text. We're just seeing what it says. Now, watch this. Abraham and Lot had competing businesses in the same market. Abraham and Lot had competing businesses in the same market. In verses 6 through 8, we find out that they both had herds, they both had herdsmen, and that because the place where they were living in was close together, there became a strife between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham because they were both in the same business in the same market. Here's a problem of capitalism. Capitalism is that while government's not supposed to regulate it, a person can get the corner on the market. If I make the best donuts in town, there's a good chance that no other donut shop will be able to make it. And if I have the best donuts with the best prices in town, I pretty much guarantee you no other donut shop will make it. Without the aid of government regulation, that is simply how it works, that you have done the best with your product and the people demand it. So that's the idea there. So Abraham and Lot have this competing business in the same market. Now I want you to notice the God-blessed solution 
in verse 9. Abram says, Is not the whole land before thee, Lot? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right, then I will go to the left. Watch the God-blessed solution. It was the separation and retention of private industry, not the confiscation and combination of private industry. You realize those are the, the two options, three options really, stay together and fight it out or separate into different markets or different fields, give each other more space, or one of them takes what the other one has, and instead of it being Lot's cattle and Abraham's cattle, it's all Abraham's cattle. Instead of it being Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen, it's all Abraham's herdsmen. And so that was one of the options on the table that Abraham could have enacted. So again, think with me. I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking cap. Does not Abraham represent the state as God clearly chose him to be the federal head of a new nation? Hasn't God already made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12? I will make out of you a new nation. Abraham is no longer just a, a normal private citizen, but he is on the track to statehood, and he is what we call the federal head of Israel. That is, he represents all that Israel will be right here in one person. Think about it. When Israel traces their history, they don't just trace it back to King David, the great unifying conquering king. They don't just trace it back to Moses, the lawgiver who codified a, a law for them. They trace it all the way back to Abraham as the head of of their nation. He's the patriarch. And so Abraham knows that he has been called by God. Abraham knows that he is going to become a nation of God. Abraham could have confiscated all of Lot's herds and herdsmen and taken them as possession of the state and then doled out responsibility and wealth to Lot if he had chosen. Do you recognize that that's a possibility? And so we have to understand that this, this narrative is unfolding and it is following a certain path. And at various points, it can depart from one direction to the other. And here it could have departed into a communistic economy, but yet it stays on the track of a capitalistic economy. And yet, as we look at this, we also begin to trace it out. And we find that Abraham's descendants carry on this capitalistic tradition. You say, you're putting a whole lot into Abraham, Justin. I mean, he, he, he's promised to be a nation, but he's not a nation yet. And maybe he's new to being this nation thing, and so he doesn't feel like he has the right to confiscate Lot's property. How do you know that this was God's plan? Well, I just keep reading the Bible, and I keep observing and what I observe is that the descendants of Abraham carry on this capitalistic tradition as they develop into a full-fledged nation. Just consider this. Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26 has private property. He has been digging wells on property that belongs to him. He is industrious and he increases in wealth. It tells us that he is multiplying, that he is getting wealthier 
As a matter of fact, there is a contention about who owns the wells. And some of the men of that region have tried to take them back over or fill them back in. And when this is resolved, it is because Isaac claims that he has ownership rights to this private land and that he has improved this land by digging wells. And you know how that chapter ends? God blessed him by finding more water when he dug more wells. Now, I'm just observing here. I'm not building a whole economic theology out of that one text. I'm just putting the pieces together, and I'm saying, man, Abraham was operating as a capitalist when God called him. God blessed him in his operation as a capitalist. He showed no communistic tendencies when he could have. Now his progeny, his son, is following on in this same vein. And then we find his grandson, Jacob, in chapter 32 and 33, also is following on. If you remember, he's working for his uncle Laban, and his uncle Laban says, what do you want for your wages? You see, uh, Jacob gets to set his wages, not, not, uh, not his uncle. It's not, it's not a totalitarian environment. And so he says, you know what? I'll, I'll take all the marked animals out of the herd. So you keep all the ones that, uh, that are solid colored, and I'll take all the ones that are striped or speckled. And God begins to bless that. And over the 20 years that he works for Laban, he amasses, he creates, he breathes a huge herd of animals numbering, I'm going to say, into the thousands. You say, how do you know it numbered in the thousands? Because when he left his uncle and he came back to his homeland, he gave 550 animals to his brother Esau. Nobody gives away 550 animals that has 600 animals. Right? And you can't give away 550 animals if you have 549 animals, right? So for him to logically, for him to give away 550 animals, he had to have a multiplied amount of that. And so we're just tracing it down from generation to generation. Not only did he accumulate for himself his own herd, but he built private wealth. He came back wealthy with finances, and he purchased private land for his family in Shechem. Do you understand? Those are all marks of capitalism. It is that you have private business, you have private possession, you have private wealth, and you have private property, and Jacob ticks all the boxes there. This is what is extremely interesting to me, that in the Bible there are a couple of places where we could say that's a communistic economy. And one of them takes place in Genesis chapter 47 when the nation of Egypt becomes a communist country because of a severe famine. If you remember the scenario in Genesis 47, uh, God has said there's going to be seven years of plenty and then there's going to be seven years of famine like never seen before. God sovereignly placed Joseph down there and Joseph collected the wheat and the grain for seven years, put it up in storehouses so that he could help that nation survive in the seven years of famine. In the first year of famine, the Egyptians come and they purchase the grain, but by the end of that year, they've exhausted all of their funds. In the second year of the famine, they begin to trade their livestock stock and their livelihood for it. And by the end of that second year, they exhaust everything that they have. In the third year, they come in and they have nothing left but their land and they give their land. And Genesis 47 says that Pharaoh owned all the land in Egypt and all the cattle in Egypt. And then Joseph took and redistributed the population into the cities and places where he wanted them to and had them working the land where he wanted to. And so that is a communistic economy. But here's what strikes me. In the middle of that communistic economy in Egypt, 
God preserved the capitalistic practices of the Israelites. If you read Genesis 47, you will find that they continued to have personal possessions in the way of cattle. You know who didn't trade in all of their cattle in Egypt? The Israelites did not. They continued to have personal wealth or they continued to profit because the Bible says that they increased, they multiplied. And that wasn't just in number, but that is also in the idea of prosperity. And they retained private ownership in, the, in property in the land of Canaan. They never forfeited the land. As a matter of fact, when Jacob dies, he says, take me back and bury me in the land that we purchased, the land that we own back in Canaan. And so even under this umbrella of communism in Egypt, God's people continued to practice in a capitalistic way. Furthermore, when God later delivered the Jews from Egyptian bondage and he brought them into the promised land, they continued to operate in a capitalistic model with private ownership. Do you remember Joshua brought them in and they divided up the land by, by tribe, by family, and by individual? That's private ownership of land. That's not communism. And so the land was divided up and deeded to individuals. It was deeded to them. This is to stay in this family. It's to be passed on to this family. It's to be sold to people in this family. Not only that, the people operated private industry. They came in with their cattle and they continued to, uh, to uh, practice animal husbandry. Uh, they cultivated vineyards in the land and they owned those privately and they sold the products of them. They farmed the land. So, so we find that when God brings this nation into maturity and brings it into the land, they have private land, they have private wealth, they have private industry. Not only that, they set up an economy, a monetary economy using valuable coinage such as silver and gold, right? How many times do we hear about them spending silver and gold and paying for things with, and it's a shekel's weight and it's this weight and it's that way. And what we find here is something that is based on something of true value. You understand? They didn't just create a paper money that had no value behind it uh, that they were used to trade in government stores. It was actual valuable metals that they used to put the purchase price and the market market determine what the price was. They operate in a free market of buying and selling of goods. Nowhere in the Old Testament do you find that the government owned everything and then it had to be distributed by the government. You find private enterprise and you find a free market. They also had laws for the protection of private property. So if you read through the Mosaic laws, if you own an ox, you have rights to that ox. And if I come take your ox or kill your ox, government had laws that would enforce to make sure that you got back what was rightfully yours. And so if I took your ox and killed it, then I had to repay you with my ox plus damages. That, again, is reinforcing the fact that there was a capitalistic economy in Israel that was endorsed by God and it was enforced by law. Literally, the nation that God established operated as a capitalistic economy. I think that is without dispute. Now, you might have an objection to that, but I, I believe that if you simply read the Bible, it's without dispute. They're operating in a more capitalistic mode. Now, within the economy, 
We realize that there were provisions for the poor, such as when you harvested your field, God said, leave the corners for the widows, the orphans, the poor. There were policies like that so that this idea that capitalism is just the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and it's, it, 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 it's vile because uh, this is making such an oppressive uh, situation. And so communism, the selling point of communism was that we'll destroy the class division and we'll pull down those who are at the top and we'll lift up those at the bottom and we'll meet them in the middle and they will all have an equal share. Let me tell you something. I've been to a communist country and if what they're living on is the equal share... I I don't want it. I don't want it. And you don't find that here. But watch. This is also interesting to me when I'm just looking, when I'm just observing economy in the Bible. There was also taxation levied against the citizenry in support of government. So capitalism doesn't mean that we're anti-government. There's no government. They don't have any right to my money. We understand that government is of God but that God created this limited government that was to be funded and, and uh, was to be run by the citizens and that we pay a reasonable tax to be able to cover things like civil infrastructure and defense, right? A private citizen cannot afford their own army and so we put money into a pool so that our government can employ an army to protect our personal autonomy, right? So we understand that there is a reason for taxes, and there was a reason for taxes, and they paid taxes in the Bible. But do you realize that it was because of high taxation that it caused Israel to split into two separate nations? You see, Solomon was the great builder of the nation of Israel, and he had increased the levy of taxes on the people while he was building the temple of God. And they were willing to pay that because they believed in the vision and what they were doing. But when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam comes into office, uh, the people come to him and say, Rehoboam, you, your father uh, put high taxes on it, and we're asking you to reduce those back down. We just we can't afford to pay those anymore. And so Rehoboam says, give me three days. Let me speak to my counselors. And he talks to his counselors, and there's one group that says, hey, you should do it. If you lower the taxes, those people will love you. They'll unite behind you. But then he had another set of counselors that says, you know what? These people are trying to run over top of you, Rehoboam, and you need to tell them what for. And so when Rehoboam meets back with him, he says, let me tell you what. I'm not going to lower the taxes. I'm going to raise the taxes. You think that my father's waist was thick? My pinky will be thicker than my father's waist because of the taxes I'll collect from you. And at that very moment, you know what happened? The ten northern tribes of Israel split and separated from the two southern tribes. And from there, the nation of Israel becomes two nations with two different trajectories, with two different capitals, Samaria and Jerusalem, and two different lines of kings until God allows them to be conquered. Why did the nation of Israel split? Because of high taxation. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Taxation without representation, Boston Tea Party, those sorts of things. Now, that's not to say that capitalism is perfect. That's not to say that capitalism is without its abuses. Because the fact is, like everything else in this world, its participants are sinful human beings. And you and I as sinful human beings sometimes are tempted by our selfish lusts. And so there are some abuses in the capitalistic market where somebody can become so greedy and they can use their capital to really dominate and squash out others that it does become abusive. But did not God address that? 
when he spoke to you and I in different places, like 1 Timothy 6.10, when he says that the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so he warns us about making money the object of our desire, the love. Of, he doesn't say money is evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. He said this in Luke 12. He said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. And so he warns about us trying to hoard wealth and be greedy. He warns us about materialism. Hey, the end all of life is not getting everything that you can. Sometimes we think, well, okay, I'm not all about the money. I'm just about all the stuff that the money can get. And we're, we're trying to create the biggest pile of stuff that we can have when we go out. And he says, that's not what life is all about. Don't, don't mistake the, the means for the end. He also says something like this in, in John, 1 John three seventeen. But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? You want to know what God's answer is for the evils of capitalism? It's salvation. It is that you and I get born again by Jesus Christ and we have the love of God dwelling inside of us so that when we make money, we realize this isn't all just for me. This is for God and I need to be looking out for other people and be willing to give and contribute to others. Now, let me ask you this question. Do those verses make any sense in a communistic economy? How are you going to accumulate wealth in a communistic economy and be guilty of the love of money? How are you going to accumulate possessions in a communistic economy that Jesus warns you about? How are you going to have wealth and somebody else doesn't have wealth in a communist? I'm just telling you, when you read the Bible and you're looking through this lens and you're saying, what's the economy behind this verse? You realize that the context every time is this capitalistic autonomy where people can make their own money and do with it what they want. So that brings us to the big question. Oh man, I'm doing good on time. That brings us to the big question. Why would God favor a capitalistic economy over a communistic economy? If my proposition is correct, and that make, make no bones about it, that's the proposition I'm making, that it is to be a capitalistic economy over a communistic economy. I believe that the Bible favors that. And if the Bible favors that, I'm saying God favors that. And so it has to be put to the test and say, why would God favor a capitalistic economy over a communistic economy? I have three answers for you. You ready? Number one, capitalism is more conducive to the primary purpose of government which is to preserve the personal autonomy of the citizens. If the primary purpose of government is to preserve this personal autonomy that God has given to us, the right to life, the right to liberty or freedom, the right to the pursuit of happiness by my own private investments and advancements, if that is the primary purpose of government, then capitalism is more conducive to that. You see, Communism undermines personal autonomy and creates a government dependency. 
If we were to switch to a communistic economy, all of a sudden, instead of people being preserving their autonomy, they are now depending on government to support them. You want some scripture to support this? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And he says, hey, you know what? We've heard that there's some people who aren't working. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't what? That's in the Bible, y'all. He goes on to say, it's reported that there's some people around there who aren't working, and instead they're going around being busybodies. And he says, I command you by the Lord Jesus Christ that every man work with his own hands and eat his own bread. Do you see the personal autonomy there? You work to earn your food so that you can survive. Nobody else owes it to you. It's not owed to you. The Heavenly Father's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. That's not prayed to the government. And so capitalism is more conducive to the primary purpose of government, which is to preserve personal autonomy. Number two, this is fun, isn't it? Capitalism facilitates a more equal opportunity for betterment based upon individual ability and effort. That's a mouthful. Capitalism facilitates a more equal opportunity for betterment based upon individual ability and effort. In other words, in a capitalistic economy, if you have a certain talent or gift and you work hard at that gift, you can advance yourself beyond what other people may be able to advance them. But if somebody else has a different gift, they can do the same with theirs. It, it equals the playing field so that your success is based upon your ability and your efforts. Interestingly enough, Jesus used a capitalistic free market to illustrate his parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a wealthy man who was going into a far country, and he calls his servants, and he delivers to one five talents, and he calls him another, and he gives him two talents, and he calls another, and he gives him one talent, and he says, Occupy until I come back. And he was gone for quite a while, and then when he comes back, it says that he called in the one that he'd given the five talents to, and the one that had given five talents comes in, and it says that he had traded, and he had gained another five talents, and the master said to him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm going to give you more responsibility. And he calls in the next servant who didn't have five talents, but he had two talents. And again, it says that he used his energy and his creativity and the market, and he gained two more talents. He doubled what he had. And again, the master doesn't scold him for not gaining five talents. He, he rewards him. Well done. You have done well. I'm going to give you more responsibility. And then he calls in the third guy that he gave one talent to. And this guy says, well, you know, I was worried about what you were going to do. So I took your talent and I hid it. And he didn't get a well done. You know what he got? You slothful and wicked servant. Shouldn't you have at least taken my talent and invested it, put it in the bank, so that when I came, I would at least get interest on it? That's what Jesus used as an illustration in Matthew chapter 25. I'm telling you, it only makes sense in a capitalistic free market. And when we realize 
The reason for that, it is because every one of us has ability. We have talents. And every one of us has opportunity. And we can, we can advance ourselves, not based upon what somebody else does, but based upon what we do. And so God is for you and I, bettering ourselves if it's in our power and it's legal. The third, and I believe this is the most important reason, that is capitalism provides more money for missions. You say, why would God favor a capitalistic market? Why is everything in the Bible framed in the context of capitalism? Why does God never speak against the evils of capitalism? Maybe because capitalism is the greatest economy for missions giving. Again, here's you some Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth talking about taking up an offering for people in a different area. It is what we would call missions. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week, let every one of you, individuals, lay by him, individual, in store, as God has prospered him. Those words are in your Bible. As God has prospered him. How is that guy going to prosper in a communistic economy? He is speaking in the context of this capitalistic economy where this man, this woman can go out this week and work and trade and sell and prosper and then out of that prosperity they have money to give to the missions offering. Did you know that nearly half of all Christian missionaries, full-time Christian missionaries in the world are from the United States? 140,000 short-term missionaries are sent out every year from the U.S. into foreign fields. Americans give over $5 billion to missions agencies. How many missionaries are communist countries sending out? You see, because in a communist country, the state controls the money. Communist China is not sending out any Christian missionaries. Communist North Korea is not funding any Christian missionaries. Communist Cuba is not funding any Christian missionaries because they control the money, they control the finances. It is not individual. It is not free market. And so what we find is that this capitalistic model of economy, why it does have some pitfalls, why it does have some abuses, I am telling you, it is the greatest tool that God gave to you and I to finance missions around this big world. And so I'm, I'm not telling you, God's not telling you, God never told you who to vote for. But he did tell you how to vote. He didn't tell you who to vote for, but he did tell you how to vote. And with every election, our, our election is no different. With every election cycle... There are matters that are on the line. And it's not about likability. It is about are we following a more biblical path or a less biblical path? Are we going to pass down something to future generations that is going to handicap them and strap them 
Or are we going to try and do something that we see modeled in the Bible to be able to keep creating a place where there's personal autonomy for its citizens? Create, keep creating a market in which people can come up and raise up out of nothing and use their personal talents and their efforts and better themselves and their family's future. And are we going to have an economy where we continue to be the greatest force in fighting back the lostness of the world by financing, funding, and sending missionaries around the globe? That's my view of government. What's yours? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you and praise you for these details that you have included in Scripture. While they may not be the headlines or the chapter headings, they are certainly the backdrop to what goes on. And that we, as careful observers, don't just come in and look at the stark words, but we look at the vivid, vibrant world in which they were given and we understand the times in which they were inspired. And we realize that you were using that as part of your revelation as well. So, Father, I pray and ask that we would be strict adherents to your word. I pray that we would be originalists and literalists when it comes to interpreting the Bible. And that we, Lord, would set aside any presupposition that we have about politics and that we would just measure each candidate and each policy and each appointee by what the Bible says. And that be our guide in voting this year. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.